The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Well, we've been going through the book of Acts passage by passage, and uh, today we're actually going to be looking at the same passage we looked at last week, which is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I thought this passage was such an important one that I thought it'd be good to spend two weeks on it instead of just one. So this is part two of the sermon that was started last week. And before we begin, let's pray. Lord, as we think about who you are, about what you've done, Lord, about the the sheer magnitude of your grace, Lord, it is our, our highest joy and our highest privilege to live for you, Lord, to have that ambition for our lives, Lord, to, to have that, that cry of our hearts, Lord, all glory be to Christ, Lord. It doesn't matter about our legacy. It doesn't, it doesn't matter about our prominence or fame or even comfort or anything, Lord. Give us that singular focus, Lord, that, that singular ambition for our lives, that all glory for every breath that we breathe and everything that we do, Lord, that all glory would be to Christ. Lord, that is certainly our prayer for the message this morning. God, we want you to be exalted. We want you to be glorified. Lord, so please get for yourself the glory that you so deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I went around to people at random in our area and asked them what church is, I'm sure I would get a variety of responses to that. Many people would probably say that church is an event that we go to on Sundays. And it's pretty common to speak of what we do here on Sundays as attending church or going to church. So a lot of people think that's what church is. Um, Others would probably say that church is a building. And that's also pretty understandable since there are certain buildings that we call churches. Then finally, a third response people might give is that church is a religious organization or institution, kind of like a maybe a business entity of sorts. Yet as we look at the New Testament, we see that none of these responses captures the essence of what church is. We see that church isn't a building, or an event, or an institution, but rather a community of believers in Jesus. And that's the main idea of the passage before us. Acts 2, 42 through 47 shows us that church at its core is a community of believers. Now, one caveat here, we do find several references in the Bible to what we might call the universal church. Uh, which consists of all believers in all places and throughout all periods of time. 
However, most often in the New Testament, the word church refers to the localized expression of that. To a community of believers who all meet together in the same place on a regular basis. And uh, notice that I'm using this terminology of community of believers rather than merely a group of believers. There's a huge difference between a community and a group. You know, a bunch of people gather together on an elevator. Could be considered a group, right? Uh, they may not even know each other's names or, or have any information about each other, and yet they're still a group simply because they happen to be in each other's proximity. So is that all we are as a church? Like, are we just a group of people waiting for heaven who all happen to be waiting on the same elevator, as it were? Well, hopefully, everyone here can sense that that's not really an adequate way of describing a church. And yet the question remains, what exactly is a church then? What does it mean to just not be a, a group of believers merely, but a community of believers? Well, if there's one place in the Bible where we find a clear answer to that question, it's right here in Acts 2. I believe this is the clearest passage in the entire Bible that shows us what a church is supposed to be like. How a true community of believers is supposed to function. Let's look at what it says about these early Christians. Acts 2, 42-47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So from this passage, we can see that there were six things that this early Christian community valued. And as we embrace these six things, I believe we'll be well on our way to understanding what it means to live as a community of believers rather than merely as a group of believers. So first, this Christian community valued truth. That's what makes it a Christian community, after all. Uh, verse 42 says that they devoted themselves first to the apostles' teaching. And if we want to know what exactly the apostles were teaching, well, the most natural place for us to look is back in this same chapter at Peter's sermon. Peter's sermon, there is exhibit A of what the apostles were teaching. Uh, you may remember from a few weeks ago that Peter's message, of course, centered on Jesus. Right? He explained how Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament. The genuine Messiah sent by God to rescue God's people. And yet Jesus did that in a way that nobody expected. You see, instead of leading God's people to political and military triumph, 
he voluntarily allowed his enemies to crucify him on a cross. And yet, Peter explains that was all according to God's plan. See, the biggest problem people had wasn't that they were oppressed by the Roman government, but rather that they were slaves of sin. Not only that, but their sin deserved, and we might even say demanded, God's judgment. And yet Jesus bore that judgment on the cross. He suffered not just the physical agony of crucifixion, but the full, undiluted wrath of God the Father against sin. Like, that's what was happening on the cross. Like, the, the righteous indignation of God was being poured out on His own Son so that it wouldn't have to be poured out on us. And we know that the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice because three days later, what did he do? He raised Jesus from the dead, right? And that's actually the focal point of Peter's sermon. Jesus' resurrection showed beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was and is the genuine Messiah who stands ready to save all who will put their trust in him. That was basically Peter's sermon in a nutshell and really a perfect example of what verse 42 in our main passage is talking about when it speaks of the apostles' teaching. And we have to understand that this teaching wasn't just important in the early Christian community. Like It was central. The narrative of Acts 2 shows us how the church was birthed by this gospel message and continued to be built on the gospel, right? This teaching right here was what brought these people together. They enjoyed unity, not around a bunch of like fluffy sentiments about unity or vague ideas of togetherness, but around the truth of the gospel message. See, in order to be unified, there has to be something that you're unified around. Like something that brings you together. Uh, unity, after all, isn't just the absence of external division. You know, going back to that elevator example, a, a group of people gathered on an elevator may be occupying the same general space and may not be fighting with each other or have any animosity toward each other, but I'm not sure we could really call those people unified. Because in order to be unified, there has to be something that you're unified around. And for Christians, that something is the gospel. There's nothing more central to a healthy Christian community than the precious truths of the gospel message. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Um, not only that, but we see secondly that they devoted themselves, it says, to the fellowship. And that Greek word translated as fellowship refers to a mutual participation and sharing. It speaks of the relational closeness that these early Christians enjoyed. And this fellowship, I believe, is the natural result and outgrowth of what we just talked about. 
treasuring the truths of the gospel and ordering our lives in light of those truths and viewing our identity in light of those truths. You know, if Jesus is the most important thing in your life and he's also the most important thing in my life, then it just makes sense that we are going to have the deepest of connections with each other. I actually believe that the bond that Christians enjoy is deeper even than the bond of a biological family. It's a bond that goes deeper even than our own flesh and blood. Because the bond that we enjoy with our family here on earth is going to cease when we die. But the bond that we enjoy as Christians will last throughout eternity. Earthly families are temporary, but God's family, that's eternal. And hopefully we can be experiencing the fellowship spoken of in these verses, not just in theory, but in practice. You know, it says of these early Christians that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And that's an indication that this relational closeness doesn't just come about automatically, but rather requires effort and intentionality. You've got to work at it and invest time into it. Yeah, on a side note, I've had a, a few people come to me over the past several years and express a desire for the people of our church to be more uh, devoted to them in various ways and to be more intentional about reaching out to them. And I, I have no doubt that that is an area in which we, we certainly need to grow. And yet, at the same time, it's also true of the church's fellowship that you usually get out of it what you put into it. Like if you just show up here on Sundays and, and, and don't really make much of an effort to connect with people outside of Sunday mornings, then you really can't expect people to act uh, the way they'd act toward someone with whom they have a close relationship. Uh, from what I've seen, Christian fellowship and uh, even church membership, for that matter, are the kinds of things that you usually get out of them what you put into them. If you want to enjoy rich fellowship with other Christians of the church and uh, the, the benefits that grow out of that fellowship, then you've actually got to invest some time into cultivating those relationships. And moving along more quickly here, uh, the next thing listed in these verses is that the, early, that the early Christians devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. And most scholars are in agreement that this was very likely a reference to the Lord's Supper. We understand from other passages of Scripture that the early Christians observed the Lord's Supper every single week. Like it was a big part of their gathering together. And uh, that's was uh, the major thing that led us as a church to start observing the Lord's Supper every week several months ago. We made that decision. And this is yet another example of, uh, from this early Christian community of how the gospel was at the very center of their community and their fellowship. And then the final item listed in verse 42 that these early Christians were devoted to was the prayers. And notice here, it doesn't say just prayers 
it says the prayers. Meaning the regularly scheduled prayer meetings. And I think it's interesting that most Christians in our society, when they read this verse, they typically just assume that it's a reference to individual prayer. And that's a perfect example, by the way, of something that we talked about last week, right? The, that hyper-individualistic mentality of our culture that colors the way we read and interpret the Bible. The grammar of verse 42, though, clearly points not to individual prayer, though I'm sure they also did that, but to the corporate prayer meetings that these early Christians participated in. Um, and it says that they devoted themselves to these prayer meetings. And uh, I praise God that you know, we were able as a church to take a, a great step toward faithfulness in this area several months ago as well when we started having a weekly prayer meeting at our church building that, that we do and, and that we greatly value. And we certainly encourage you to attend that and to participate in that as you're able to. And then next we continue uh, moving forward in this passage beyond verse 42 and we come to verses 44 and 45 and we see that the early Christian community was also characterized by what I'll call radical generosity. Look again at what it says. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I don't believe that these early Christians were practicing communism, as uh, some might be tempted to think, uh, because, well, several chapters later, we read about them continuing to contribute things that they owned for the welfare of others in the church. So it doesn't seem as though they abolished all private property, since they apparently still had some of it left to give uh, several chapters later. Uh, rather, it seems best to say that they were extremely generous with their possessions. They held everything they had with open hands. And we find written a few chapters later in Acts 4.34 that there was not a needy person among them, it says. Imagine that. Like every single Need in the church was met, not through government programs, but through the generosity of Christians toward each other. And that's a good reminder for us as well. <laughs> and I dare say a, uh, something that should challenge us. And friends, if, if God has been so generous to us in giving us his own son, how could we withhold generosity from other people, especially from our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And then a final value that we find present in this Christian community of Acts 2 is evangelism, which is just a fancy word for sharing the gospel with people. Verse 47 says that they had favor with all the people and that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I think it's pretty safe to assume that that wasn't just a result of the apostles preaching the gospel in the public square. Uh, no, the picture we find throughout the book of Acts is that the entire Christian community was very active in spreading the gospel. And the interesting thing 
is that we don't find any evidence of any sort of evangelistic training efforts in the early church. And that's actually true, not just in the book of Acts, but incredibly for the first three centuries of the church's existence. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. But even for the first 300 years of the church's existence, there are almost no examples at all of evangelistic training materials or really even of the church leaders teaching the rest of the people that they should be evangelizing. And yet, somehow, they were relentless in their efforts to spread the gospel. So how is that? Well, I think we find the answer a few chapters later in Acts. When the Jewish religious leaders tell Peter and John to stop sharing the gospel, they answer in Acts 4.20 that we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. They couldn't stop themselves. The gospel so filled their heart that it, it just overflowed into their conversations. And that's what I believe evangelism is supposed to be. God never intended that we would have to make ourselves share the gospel or that we would do so out of a sense of guilt or obligation. Rather, the biblical model is that our joy in Christ would be so great and would so fill our hearts that it would just naturally overflow into our conversations. You know, kind of like if you were to pour water into a cup that's already full. What's going to happen if you do that? Well, the water has to go somewhere, right? And the only place it really has to go is over the rim of that cup. And that's what we should aspire to experience in our lives. As we seek the Lord and as we consider all that He's done for us, it should naturally make us like, like full cups. And not just full, but overflowing. So that we find ourselves naturally talking about Jesus, not because we have to, but because we want to. And that's what it seems was going on here in Acts 2. These early Christians were so full of joy in the Lord and so excited about what he had done for them that they couldn't stop themselves from sharing the gospel with others. With the result, as verse 47 says, that the people came to faith in Jesus on a daily basis. So that's the way this Christian community of Acts 2 functioned. That's what they valued. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, prayer meetings, radical generosity, and evangelism. What a beautiful portrait of what a church is supposed to be. Not a building or merely an event or an institution, but a community of believers who value these things and engage with one another and with the world in these ways. And thinking of this community of believers as a whole, I believe there are some incredibly significant implications for how you and I should relate together as a community of believers 
today. You know, people often wonder, um, especially when they first come to our church, how they can get more involved and how they can serve in the church and how they can invest themselves in the lives of other people here. And of course, just like in any church, there are positions that we need people to fill. Uh, right? The things like volunteering in the children's ministry and the music ministry and the, the setup team and the, the welcome team and the media team, things like that. I mean, th- those are all very helpful and very much needed. And yet as important as those things are, I'd say that there are other, more informal ways to serve that are just as significant and in many cases even more significant than any official volunteer position that you could have. So as a way of encouraging us to live as the community of believers that the Bible says we are, I'd like to very briefly give you what I believe are the top six most overlooked ways to serve in the church. Uh, For me as a pastor, seeing the majority of people doing these things would be, man, it would be like a kid on Christmas morning. Like it, it would be a dream come true to see these things being done. And I do rejoice whenever I hear about them happening. And perhaps the best part is that these six most overlooked ways to serve are things that pretty much any Christian can do. Like you don't have to have a lot of training or be, you have this unique set of gifts or abilities to do these things. Like pretty much anybody can do each one of these six things. And so first, uh, be intentional about engaging people on Sunday mornings. Now, obviously that begins with simply showing up like we discussed extensively last week. And uh, when you come, try to engage people that you don't know. Especially if they look like they might be guests or, or maybe they're sitting alone or they don't seem like they have anyone to talk to. Whatever it is. You know, how intentional are you when you walk in those doors? How do you choose where to sit? How do you choose who to talk to? How do you choose when to arrive and when to leave? I mentioned last week that coming 20 minutes early and staying 20 minutes late is a great way to get to know others here and and to have opportunities to meaningfully engage with them. So that's the first thing. Be intentional about engaging people Sunday mornings. Then second, practice hospitality. Invite people over for a meal. Uh, We see here in Acts 2 that a lot of their fellowship was taking place in people's homes. And so invite people over to your home. You don't have to have the, the nicest home or even the cleanest home. Uh, for, from what I've observed, the warmth and care that you display as a host is 10 times as important as the size or the cleanliness of your house. And so the the home is just a wonderful context for meaningful relationships to develop and meaningful conversations to take place. And also keep in mind that there are other ways to show hospitality as well, such as taking meals to people who are going through a difficult or a challenging time. Uh, You know, Becky and I still 
can recall with great fondness the people who brought us meals when each of our children was first born. And so that, that, that's the kind of thing that, that really is appreciated. And then third, seek to develop discipling relationships. These are relationships in which Christians help other Christians grow towards spiritual maturity. Uh, they might involve things like getting together to discuss a passage of Scripture or, or discuss what you've been reading in, in Scripture the past week or, or maybe going through a good Christian book together or getting together to, to pray for people you're trying to reach out to or it, really just about any other spiritually beneficial activity. Um, you might even uh, just have a more or a less structured time of getting together, maybe doing a certain hobby or whatever the case might be. So get to know other Christians and see if the Lord opens any doors for you to start investing in someone else in that way. I mean, that is, I'll just say, for personal experience, that is one of the most meaningful and rewarding investments you can make in your life. And if you don't think that you're yet spiritually mature enough to do that kind of thing and to disciple someone else, well, then let me just say that that is a very good indication that perhaps you need to be discipled. And so seek out someone to disciple you, if that's the case. And then fourth, pursue those whom you haven't seen lately. Like if you haven't seen someone attend uh, worship on Sunday or if they're in your community group and they haven't attended your community group lately, maybe send them a text message to see how everything's going and to, to let them know that you're praying for them. Because uh, really, regardless of what the situation is that has led to their not being there, it's really an appropriate thing to do regardless. Uh, because if they are beginning to wander away from the Lord, then they certainly need you to reach out to them. And even if they're not wandering from the Lord and they just have a very legitimate reason for not attending, then I would think that in most cases they would just appreciate knowing that they're missed. That's one thing I've observed, that if someone isn't able to attend something in general, they just like to know somebody thought about it. Somebody noticed they weren't there and that they were missed. And uh, so take the initiative to pursue those whom you haven't seen lately. Understand that we as elders, we, we do try our best to, to pursue people and to do what I'm talking about here, but we can't do it all. <laughs> we need you, especially if you're a church member. We need you to take the initiative and to understand that that is also your calling and your responsibility as well. Next, the fifth most overlooked way to serve is to comfort those who are hurting. If you, knew, if you know someone who has just lost a loved one or is hurting for whatever reason, reach out to them. Send them a text message to let them know you're thinking of them and praying for them. Even better, send them a card. And even better than that, take them a meal with a card that you hand deliver. So, life is full of things that are just very difficult. Some things, they, they just bring heartache. 
quite honestly. So what a blessing it is to receive comfort from others in the church. That's what a family does, right? They comfort each other. Then finally, number six on this list of most overlooked ways to serve in a church is to start an evangelistic Bible study. Now, those of you who have recently been through the church membership class, or maybe you're just more familiar with our church, you know uh, that this is, uh, I guess, the important role that this plays in uh, our church's outreach. And for those who may not have heard as much about it yet, uh, let me just say that these evangelistic Bible studies are absolutely, hands down, our church's main method for organized outreach. Uh, essentially, these studies consist of thinking of people who may not be Christians yet, or simply people who could benefit from learning more about basic Christian teachings, and then inviting those people over to your house or to another convenient location in order to study the Bible together, often with the help of a curriculum that's designed for that specific purpose. Uh, we do have a number of different resources that we like to recommend. And in fact, if you do want to know more about these studies, I don't have time to launch into an in-depth explanation right now, but I actually did write an article entitled, you know, I'm, I'm the best with these creative titles, right? How to Start an Evangelistic Bible Study is the title of it. So you don't have to guess what, what it's about. It'll tell you. It'll, it'll provide you with some very detailed instructions for pretty much every step, every, uh, or mo many kinds of scenarios. And it's just a very practical nuts and bolts type of resource. And so I'd be glad to email that to you if you desire that. And we really do try to provide sufficient resources here. So, and ongoing support as well. So that pretty much any Christian could start one of these studies. Even if you've never taught or led anything before. And if you're still not confident enough to actually lead one of these studies, and, but you perhaps know people who might be interested in participating in them, maybe friends you have or whatnot, then um, we would love to maybe connect you with someone in the church who is more experienced and comfortable to, to actually lead the study itself. So as you can see here, there are plenty of needs in the church and plenty of opportunities that a lot of people never even think about to invest your life into the lives of other people in a very meaningful way. I mean, these are the kinds of things, guys, that are going on regularly. And I'd even say continuously in a healthy community of believers. These things, this is what living as a, a community of Christians is all about. In fact, two shows us anything. It shows us that when God saves us, He saves us into a family. And what a precious gift that family is. And you know, we, we live in a society that is fractured and fragmented in so many ways. And it seems to be becoming, unfortunately, more fractured and fragmented almost by the day. Yet God designed the church to be a place where people come together as a loving community 
and care for each other and help each other and minister to each other's needs as the spiritual family that we are. What a gift and what a blessing.